Would you take a Bible and turn with me to chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. And the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think will be deserved or he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Father in heaven, I undertake to open this awesome, frightening text with great trepidation. I feel utterly inadequate to feel what one ought to feel in reading such overwhelmingly horrible words. To fall into the hands of a living and angry God who has infinite power is the most terrifying thought in all the universe. And the appalling thing is that virtually nobody thinks about it. And it is coming for so many. So I ask, Father, for your help in this hour, that you would guard us from Satan who does not want this word to be heard nor spoken. Protect us from his distractions and obstructions. And grant, I pray, as John prayed earlier, eyes to see and ears to hear, so that we might be if necessary, shamed and moved to seek your name. I ask the help now of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. If if in the real world that we live in, there is such a reality as divine judgment and vengeance and wrath then surely love and honesty and wisdom would all include warnings of danger and not just promises of blessing. We live in a very strange time, strange age, it seems to me. I puzzle over it many weeks. On the one hand, all around us is agony and 
catastrophe and tragedy and suffering and violence of every kind. And we see it in pictures in the newspaper. We see it every evening on the television news. And those who have thoughtful minds and large minds know that we are seeing the barest tip of an iceberg of hatred and greed and hostility and violence, not to mention massive suffering, starvation and poverty and the status of tens of thousands of refugees. And on the other hand, we don't want to hear about this. We don't want to hear about this or any other bad news. We are in America a soft people. We're soft people. Most of the world deals with death minus morphine every day in the most horrid forms. Most of the world does. We gag at a dead dog. And we get angry if 911 takes five minutes instead of three minutes. We are soft and we are presumptuous. And what's most appalling of all, though very few people consider it appalling at all, is that when it comes to God... The only message we want to hear is a sweet message and a soft message and a warm message. It's the side of God we want to hear about. We believe and have been taught for 20 or 30 years that the only good motivation is motivation that comes from a message about grace and not about judgment. And little by little... This is the worst part. Little by little, that motivational conviction, as unbiblical as it is, begins to, begins to worm its way into our convictions about the nature of God such that we cease to have categories, not only such that we can't understand a God of judgment and wrath, but we can't love him. This book of Hebrews is relentless in not letting us become blind to the wrath of God. This book, this is an amazing book. This book is rife with living by faith in future grace. This book oozes with good news. From beginning to end, it begins with he made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of God. And it ends with the shepherd of our souls by the blood of the covenant rising from the dead, never to leave his people ever again. And chapter after chapter after chapter is bent on celebrating our priest and our sacrifice and our shepherd and the one who never forsakes us and whose death and resurrection is totally sufficient for the worst of sinners. This book oozes grace and it is shot through 
with wrath and judgment. It's an amazing book. You see it. You remember. You've been around a year now. Some of you. Many of you. We saw it. Chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We saw it in chapter 3, verse 11. I swore in my wrath they shall never enter my rest. Take heed lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief. We saw it in chapter 6. It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who've been enlightened and then have committed apostasy. They are like land which is worthless and near to being cursed. And today, now we see it again in our text. This text, 26 to 31 of chapter 10, begins, ends... And in the middle has descriptions of the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And I want to show you those three pieces as we begin to look at it. Let's look first at the first one in verse 26 and 27. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but... A certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now, if you break that down into pieces, there is a legal picture of judgment, an emotional picture of judgment, and a physical picture of judgment. Let me point them out. The legal picture is in the word judgment. A certain terrifying expectation of judgment. God will one day function as holy, righteous, just judge of every human being, whether they want him to or not. Second, the emotional picture In the phrase, the fury of a fire. Literally, it says, a zeal, a passion of fire. God is not a little bit angry. He is passionately angry at sinners for their sin. God is not a little bit angry. He is very angry. And when you put the word very in front of omnipotence, this is terrifying, which is the word used at the end of the text. That's the emotional picture. And the third picture is the physical one. This fire consumes, it eats the adversaries. That does not mean it annihilates them such that they exist no longer. It means that the adversaries are swallowed up in holy fire forever. That's the beginning of the text. Now drop your eyes down to verses 30 and 31 at the end of the text. And we see another picture of this judgment. We know him who said... Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, 
The Lord will judge his people. Verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, whatever your view of the creator of the universe is and of the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is a distorted and inadequate view if it doesn't include vengeance and if it doesn't include terrifying judgment. Jonathan Edwards has gotten his name into most high school literature textbooks by virtue of preaching one sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The text comes from Deuteronomy. The words come from verse 31 of Hebrews 10. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is God. This is our God. This is the God that the world needs to know about. Though nobody today almost wants to hear it or will hear it. It must be heard. I said it was one, there's a text at the beginning, the the end, and now let's go back to the middle to see another description of this judgment. In verse 28, he talks about people who've rejected the law of Moses and without mercy are put to death on the witness of two or three people. And now verse 29 says, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? So the judgment of God is described here as punishment and it is worse than death. You see that? In verse 28, when you reject the law of Moses, you're put to death. In verse 29, it's worse than death, which means it's after death. It's longer than death. It's more than death. Chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Now, this portrait of God at the beginning, the middle, and the end of this text, our strange age does not want to hear, it does not believe it is true, and it does not believe it is helpful because of our understanding of psychology. And how the human psyche works. For most people today, if there is a God, he exists to be thanked briefly after a close call and questioned thoroughly after a tragedy. I got a phone call Friday from a a man out of state. I'd never met the guy, never heard of him. And he says, in a nutshell, may I come to Minneapolis and meet with you in an afternoon because I am going through the darkest time of my life and I need to talk to you. And I said, where do you live? And I I won't tell you where he lives. I'll just say he would drive over 12 hours to talk to me. 
And I said, why do you want to do that? And he said, I have approached every counselor and friend that I know of where I am, and they all begin with the assumption God doesn't have anything to do with this tragedy. And I know it's not true. And I don't know where to turn but to somebody who's written a book like The Pleasures of God. This nation and many Christians don't believe that God has any side to him at all that's described in this text. They just won't talk about it. Doesn't matter how distorted or lopsided or incomplete and false the views are, if it looks good and feels good, we'll say that's God. It's a sad thing. Well, we arranged, I talked him out of coming and arranged an extended phone interview. I just didn't think that was good stewardship, but we'll talk. That man's response is not typical. Most people don't tremble at the power and the wrath and judgment of God. He's a good old boy or he's a coddling father or he's a doting friend, but not a raging fire and not a God of indignation, not a God who is angry. Anger today is a bad thing. No way. He may cause rain to come for the farmer's sake, but he doesn't cause flooding. He may give life to baby butler, but he doesn't take life, especially not if you're under 40. He can give it. He can't take it. This is a God created in the image of our felt needs, and he is an idol. We need a reality check, folks. We need a reality check, which is why this book exists. Reality check here. Terrifying expectation of judgment, fury of fire, consuming adversaries, rendering punishment worse than death, repaying vengeance with terrifying hands. That, too, is the truth about God. And so here's the question. When is he like that? And when is he not? That's the question, isn't it? Now there's an answer for that question in this text. It's in verse 26. The answer is, he is like that when there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Let's read it. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now notice the connection with the next verse. But instead... A terrifying expectation of judgment. So put the two verses together and you got two possibilities. Either there remains 
a sacrifice for sins or there remains terrifying judgment. Those are the two possibilities in life. Either we've got a sacrifice to cover our sins or we've got a God filled with wrath against us. Those are our two possibilities. What that verse says is that the reason God is angry is sin. You see that? doesn't take any great exegetical prowess to see that, does it? There no longer remains a sacrifice for what? Say the word. Sins. That's why he's angry. Sin tramples the glory of God, the worth of God, the beauty of God, the treasure of God, the truth of God, the justice of God, tramples it in the dirt. And God loves his glory because it's the one treasure that can satisfy the human heart and may not be treated like dirt without destroying humanity and his own honor. And therefore, when we sin, he is Angry. And our only hope is that there might be a sacrifice for sins. And he says, where there isn't, I'm angry and I'm coming in anger against those who have no sacrifice for sins. So I've said it like this many times and I'll say it again because this is the gospel as I understand it. The love of God makes escape from the wrath of God by sacrificing the Son of God to vindicate the righteousness of God because people have sinned and trampled the glory of God. Let me just shorten that down because that's too long to fit in your brain perhaps. Let's just shorten it to this. The gospel is the good news that the love of God does not give us up to the wrath of God, but makes an escape from the wrath of God by sacrificing the Son of God for sinners. Which means that if you don't believe in and embrace the truth of the wrath of God, you don't know the gospel. You know a psychologized form of mind control. The gospel has to do with objective realities outside this brain of mine that are destroying me from outside, namely wrath, sin, Satan, hell, all outside the workings of my brain. And they are coming on me to destroy me and that's got to be dealt with by God, and he dealt with it. So if we ask, where is God a God of wrath and anger and holy fire? The answer is, where there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. Next question. For whom is there no longer a sacrifice for sins? Get the question now. And ask, is that me? For whom is there no longer a sacrifice for sins, but only a fiery, terrible expectation of divine wrath? 
Now, the answer to that question is what this text is all about. And it is given in two ways, and we'll take them one at a time. First, it is given by describing those people in terms of what they have become that makes them fit for wrath. And then it describes those people in terms of what they once were, which makes all the worse their fitness for wrath. That's what this text is about. Two descriptions of people. What they are like now that makes them so fit for judgment and what they once were but are no more. Let's take them one at a time. What are they now that makes them so fit for judgment? And there are five descriptions. I'll just take them very briefly. Number one. Verse 26, they go on sinning willfully. Two words are very crucial here. The tense of go on sinning, present continuous action, go on sinning. And then this other word coming in to show you the kind of persons they become, willfully. Willfully. So there's a extent to it and there's a aggravation to it. This text is not about any old particular sin that you might call the unpardonable sin. Many people have wrestled with this text. Ah, what's the unpardonable sin here that goes beyond forgiveness? It's not talking about a sin. Lust, greed, some terrible sexual thing you might do. They're all forgivable. Not a person in this room who doesn't need to go to, doesn't deserve to go to hell. We've all committed sins. Some horrid ones and some less seemingly horrible ones. That's not what this verse is about. This verse is about going on willfully pursuing a life of sin with indifference to what you once knew. So if you would ask me, what's the unpardonable sin? I would say, nobody knows except God, but there is a line drawn in the life of going on willfully until one day you're over into being Esau. Chapter 12, verse 17, who cried out for repentance and could not do it. The unforgivable sin is the sin for which you cannot authentically repent. And that arrives in life when you willfully pursue against grace, knowledge, blood, Son of God, sin. Do not presume that you may not cross it this afternoon. Do not presume that you have five years before you get to that point. You may be too far gone this morning. I do not know. The question is, can you repent? And you might be too far gone tomorrow, but not today. Today, harden not your hearts. He weeps in chapter 3. Please, today, harden not your hearts. Why? Because tomorrow they may be too hard. Oh, how many people play with God. Number two, verse 27, at the end, 
the word adversaries. The fury of God's fire will consume the adversaries. That's the second description of what people have become who are beyond this. They're not just people who sin here or there or fight in and out of lust or something. These are people who become the adversaries of God. Thirdly, verse 29, they have trampled underfoot the Son of God. The Son of God has appeared to them in some way in a sermon on the radio, in their Bible reading. He has, as it were, laid Himself on the ground as a sacrifice to be received as their substitute. They have looked at Him, become a little bit religious, and stepped on His neck to move on to sin. Fourthly, they regard as unclean or common the blood of the covenant. Unclean's not quite the right word, I don't think. It's common, ordinary, nothing special, nothing sacred, nothing precious here. And so many of them have come to church and they have stood or walked or sat and taken that little cup of the emblem of the most precious reality in the universe and have looked at it and said, nice juice, drunk it. And gone out to sin. And treated as common the blood of the Son of God. Lastly, the fifth description of what they've become is verse 29. They insulted the Spirit of grace. The Spirit of grace moves in this building every Sunday. It's moving right now. The Spirit of grace is brooding over this room right now. You are here by virtue of the Spirit of grace in your life. You, you might sit there and say, I've never, I've never known the Spirit of grace. How could I insult the Spirit of grace? You're here by virtue of the Spirit of grace. You breathe by virtue of the Spirit of grace. You're hearing my words right now with a brain that's functioning by virtue of the Spirit of grace. You haven't walked out of this room as uncomfortable as you feel right now by virtue of the Spirit of grace. And many people even take the Spirit of grace to themselves and then make it into a license for sin, because he will always forgive. And little by little, that too becomes unnecessary and can be thrown away. And they enter into life of willful sinning. Now that leaves one last thing to do here. That's the description of what these people had become. Such that the writer says, you press on in that. And there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only judgment. Now the question is, who were they? Where did they come from? What kind of people were they before this happened to them? And that's what makes this text really controversial. There are three descriptions of them, and we close by a brief look at this description. The first one is in verse 26. These are people who have the knowledge of the truth. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice 
for sins. The casualties of God's wrath in this text are people who have trampled upon the Son knowingly. They know the truth. The Bible teaches that we will all be judged according to the measure of light and truth that we have. And we have a lot. They were walking away from Christ in the broad daylight of the truth. Secondly, they are described surprisingly to our ears, I think, as God's people. Look at verse 30. To explain what's happening in divine vengeance, he says at the end of verse 30, the Lord will judge his people. Now that is very important to understand the dynamic of this text. You must come to terms with the fact that this judgment, this wrath, this fire, this anger is coming against my people, says the Lord. What's that mean? I believe it means that this writer sees the visible church, the church that shows up on Sunday morning, the visible church. He sees the visible church the same way he saw the people of Israel. God's people, right? All saved? Wrong. For example... Ezekiel chapter 34, 17, God says, As for you, my flock, and I talk like this, I talk like this, As for you, my flock, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and he goats. In other words, in the Bible, the phrase, Church, or the phrase my people or God's people refers in the judgment of charity to all who have either in the Old Testament by virtue of being born Jews or being circumcised and in the New Testament by virtue of professing faith in Christ, joining the church, taking the sacraments, are treated as God's people. And every biblical writer knew all God's people weren't saved. Externally, he calls them the people of God. He even calls them brothers, holy brothers, in chapter 3, giving them all the benefit of the doubt that their profession of faith in the Messiah is true. But there are many hypocrites, both in Israel and in the church of Jesus Christ visibly. The visible church and the true church of the elect are not identical. And the Bible often treats the visible church as the people of God. And so these people who have entered into willful sinning and left behind the sacrifice of the Son trampling Him under their feet are my people, up to a certain point. Finally, the most controversial of all, 
is in verse 29. They are sanctified. They were sanctified. How much severer punishment do you think will he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean or common the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Wow. That's scary. Now, I'm going to close with this. I do not... This is very controversial. And I'll give you three views and tell you which one's mine. One view... The first two are not mine. One view is that this text therefore teaches that you can be born of God, justified, and consequently sanctified, sanctified, and lost in the end because of having thrown away your faith. So there is no eternal security, they would say, and this text proves it because a person being sanctified is clearly on the other side of new birth and justification and therefore new birth and justification guarantee nothing about whether you make it to heaven So there's no eternal security. That's one very, very common view. A second view is that the possibility being held out here concerning sanctified people becoming apostate never, in fact, happens. It is only a theoretical possibility. If they forsook the faith, they would, in fact, be lost... But they will never forsake the faith because God commits himself to his elect to preserve them. And indeed, I do believe he does. That's not my view either. I cannot escape the implication that this writer thinks this happens. I really think this writer believes this happens. So... Uh, The question is whether or not it does jeopardize eternal security. And if not, why not? I do not embrace the rejection of eternal security. And I don't think this verse calls it into question. First of all, because elsewhere in the book it is so powerfully taught. Let me just give you two key verses. Hebrews 3.14 says... We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance to the end. Which means if you don't hold fast the beginning of your assurance to the end, you had not become a partaker of Christ. Perseverance to the end in faith is a sign that you did become a partaker. Failure to persevere to the end is a sign that you did not ever become a partaker of Christ. That's what that verse seems to me very clearly teaches Here's one that we just talked about a few weeks ago. Fifteen verses earlier in this chapter. You could let your eyes go up there and see this one. Verse 14 of chapter 10. 
You get this glorious gospel word that goes like this. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Or more literally, those who are being sanctified. Now there's a verse to put over against 29 and puzzle with. You talk about a puzzle. I'm glad those two verses come from the same chapter in the same book. Because unless you're willing to say this man has such a brain problem that he can't remember what he wrote 15 verses earlier, you got to come to terms with the fact that verse 14 says, those who are being sanctified have been perfected forever by a single sacrifice. And therein lies the gospel. So what are we going to do now? Verse 29 says... They were sanctified, and now they're on their way to hell. And verse 14 says, they were being sanctified, and therefore they're perfected forever by a single all-sufficient sacrifice. Is this double talk? My conclusion is that the kind of sanctification in verse 14 and the kind in verse 29 are not the same. The process of spiritual transformation into the likeness of Christ in verse 14 proves a genuine united heart to Christ. However, whatever it was in verse 29 simply exacerbates the judgment when a person throws over his face. So what could it be? I mean, what, 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 is, what is this sanctification in verse 29 after which you can be lost? It's really not hard to give an answer to that from the book of Hebrews and elsewhere in the Bible or from this church's experience. For Here's what I think it means. It means a religious separation from the world as you draw near to the people of God and indeed to God. It means an outward purification of life. Like Jesus said, you cleanse the outside of the cup. It's coming under the influence of the truth Sunday after Sunday in the reading and the preaching and the singing and the praying of God's word, which has an inevitable moral impact upon people's lives who are not born again. It is coming under the influence of a loving congregation who act in a way and out of a spirit that is so different from the world. It, it, it begins to shape you and guide you even when you have not yet been changed inside. It is the coming under the influence of the, the ordinances and the taking in your hand that emblem of the most precious of all realities and drinking it to yourself. And Paul says, if you drink Unworthily, you drink damnation to yourself. So Paul had the same kind of trampling and scorning in view that the writer of the Hebrews does. And in all of this, they are visibly set apart. That's what sanctification means. Visibly set apart from the world, sanctified exactly like the people of Israel were by virtue of circumcision and many sacrifices and much blood work, most of whom were lost. And lest we miss the phrase, 
Verse 29, I do acknowledge, says, it happened by the blood of the covenant. Because I believe every single gospel influence in a person's life, the preaching of the word, the love of God's people, the ordinances, and the common grace that draws them are all purchased by the blood of Jesus. Even short of salvation. I close with a warning. As earnestly as I know how, you in this room now, even if this is the first time you ever came to church, have knowledge. Do not trample the Son of God under your feet. Do not treat with scorn the blood of the covenant. Do not despise and insult the Spirit of grace that right now, in this room, is brooding over this people. But rather, repent, yield, and receive the asbestos righteousness of Jesus and clothe yourselves with it so that when you walk into the flame of judgment at the end, it will be like a vacation on the beach with the sun shining bright and not fire. Father, I pray that you'd make it plain and that you would win people for yourself this morning. And some of us will stand here at the front for a few minutes at the end of the service and we'd be more than willing to pray about anything in your life with you. We'd encourage you to talk to us and pray with us. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all of the people of God said, Amen.